So we are in the book of Acts. Uh, I think we're going to get up to cr- just before Christmas uh, and we'll, we'll just about get to Acts chapter 10. Uh, and then after that, we're going to take a little bit of a break. I think it's good to, especially when you're doing a big, long book like Acts. slippy t-shirt so the mic fell off there we go let's put it on the non-slippy bit hopefully that'll stay um when you're in a long book like acts it's good to take a bit of time out go somewhere else uh, so we'll take it up to christmas and then we'll take a little bit of a break and maybe return to it sometime next year um, but we are in acts chapter nine and for the last little bit we've been looking at saul's story we know saul better as paul the apostle to the gentiles And in the last few weeks, the last month or so, we've been looking at how Saul, who was happy that the church was being persecuted, he he was there when Stephen, the very first martyr, was killed. And we're told he looked on and he approved. He went from there to getting authority to chase down the Christians and get even more of them to meeting the Lord Jesus and doing a complete 180 And far from being against the Lord, he actually starts to go and devote himself to Jesus. And today we're in Acts 9, verse 19 to 31. And we're going to see how Paul, or Saul, sorry, I I am going to mix those names up. I apologise. Anytime I'm reading from the Bible, it will say Saul. It's in a couple of chapters time that they, they flip over to Paul. But we all know who I'm talking about. So Saul begins his ministry. So if we're starting halfway through verse 19, and a little bit like I did last week, I'm just going to read through, take some pauses, do some diversions, etc. So Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Now, this compares with the beginning of the chapter, where Saul was traveling to Damascus to be against the disciples. But no, because of what Jesus has done, he is now with the disciples. Now, as I was preparing for this, I remembered Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. Anyone remember Gamaliel? We looked at him two or three months back. Because Gamaliel is the one who, when um, when the apostles had been arrested for the third time, said, look, we have these things where people think there's something. We have these times where people think they're a Messiah and they get a bit above themselves and then it gets quashed and they fall to nothing. Look, we could absolutely make a big thing about this Jesus of Nazareth, but if it's God, we might find ourselves fighting against God. If it's not God, it's going to come to nothing. We've seen that from recent history. But if it's God, do we really want to fight against him? Now, although Paul was Gamaliel's disciple, clearly he didn't follow his advice very well because actually Paul, and I've only just noticed this, in the book of Acts, I think the reason we have Gamaliel's advice is because Luke wants us to see Paul fought against Jesus. He didn't follow Gamaliel's advice. Gamaliel said, leave him alone. Just tell him not to do it anymore, but leave him alone. And let's see so that we don't fight against God. What does Paul do? goes against them. He fights against them. And what happens? Rock. 
does not move. He comes against the rock. He's the one who's broken. The rock isn't destroyed. He is broken open and he finds that he was fighting against the very God he claimed to be serving. And Jesus brings him through this process with the road to Damascus, with Ananias that we talked about last week, to this point where he is no longer against the disciples, he is with the disciples. Verse 20, immediately, straight away. There's no sense of, well, you know, maybe I should just find my feet a little bit or anything like that. No, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. If you remember last week, we saw Ananias, who was a little bit nervous about going to see Saul. He said, "Uh, this guy's not very good news, Lord. Are you sure that you want me to go to him? Really? And the Lord said, yes, because he's going to take my name to the Israelites, to the kings, and to the Gentiles. This right here, proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, is the very beginning of fulfilling what the Lord said Paul would do. He's taking him to the synagogues. He's taking him to the Israelites. And he is proclaiming he is the Son of God. Up to this point, no one else has been proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Up to this point in the book of Acts, although um, Paul, no, not Paul, Peter, said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you remember that, and then very quickly, immediately said, no, Lord, you can't possibly die get thee behind me Satan Jesus had to say talk about highs and lows this is the first time in the book of Acts that Jesus is called the son of God he's called the Messiah he's called Lord he's called the name by which we are saved but here Paul goes that same step that Peter took in the gospels and sees that Jesus isn't just the Messiah he is the son of God and that is what he was proclaiming I want to just pause a moment there and ask, when we try and tell people about our faith, what do we proclaim? When street preachers are doing what street preachers do, more often than not, what is it they're proclaiming? Might not be Jesus. Usually, people start off with, Uh, on the street preacher scene anyway, you are going to hell and wonder why people don't listen. They start off with, you're doing this wrong thing, you're doing that wrong thing, you're doing the other wrong thing and wonder why people don't listen. Paul doesn't start there. He starts with Jesus. I want to suggest we should start with Jesus. There's going to come a point, because Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that yes, you are going to have to say, well, I know that you're fiddling your books. And if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to stop that. Or, I know that you lie sometimes. I've caught you in it before. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to stop doing that. But you start with Jesus. People too often think that we're all about sin. We're all about living right, living proper. If you ask most people out there, if we were to go 
braved the rain and the wind and asked the people on the field there, what do you think Christians stand for? <sighs> it wouldn't be very nice because we're homophobic, we're transphobic, we just want to point the finger at people and point out where they're wrong, we're against people having a good time, we don't want young people to have a good time, oh no, you need to stop doing that, no, 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 no. We're obsessed with sex. We're obsessed with power. People don't like us. And I want to suggest it's because we haven't. I'm not talking us. I'm talking the broad church in the West. Having been in this position of power and influence for so long, we have majored on things other than Christ. We've majored on right living, having your life in order, doing the good stuff, not doing the bad stuff. More often than not, if people say, if you do something good, and I've had this at work, you know, if I've done someone a good deed, it's like, ah, oh, that's mighty Christian of you. Sorry, what's that got to do with Jesus? I, I got you a cup of tea. No, I can do that in the name of Jesus, absolutely. And it can be a blessing to people. But people use it as this shorthand for, you've done something nice. That isn't what it's meant to be. We're meant to be like Paul. We're meant to be proclaiming Jesus. Amen? All who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? There is power in a changed life. Do you know it? I can remember I went to a commission prayer and fasting event with Eddie this week. And I like going places with Eddie because it means that he gets to tell his story a little bit more often. And Eddie's story is great. Eddie, the story of Eddie, is the story of a changed life. He said it many times to me. Yeah, you wouldn't have liked me before I was a Christian. The Lord made such a difference. And he talked about, the, on Wednesday, he talked about the next day after he became a Christian, he was ambushed in church. God gave three highly specific prophetic words about his life that no one could possibly have known. Three in a row. God wanted him. And the next day, after Eddie had given in, Someone takes him to one side, I think he's just before lunch, and said, what's happened with you? What do you mean? Something has happened. Because so far today, you've not sworn at anyone. You've not shouted at anyone. You've not tried to fire anyone. What's happened? And all he could say is, well, I met Jesus yesterday. Paul met Jesus and it changed everything. In some ways, being raised in a Christian family, I'm a little bit jealous of stories like Eddie's. Because I don't have this horrible past that I can tell people Jesus changed everything. But you know what? I used to be this shy, quiet person. When I was at school and we had to do English orals, I can remember in year eight, I was looking down at the ground. <laughs> I 
when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, when I met Jesus, I came out of my shell. And I went from getting C minuses or Ds in English orals to being able to speak up and getting Bs, A minuses and As. Because the Lord made a difference in my life. Year 8 John would not be stood here doing this right now. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. In the same way that Peter denied the Lord Jesus before the cross and after the cross, after Pentecost, stands up in front of thousands and says, yes, this Jesus is mine and he can be yours too. That is the power of a changed and transformed life. Verse 22, Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, just as a little side note, if you remember when we were looking at Galatians in midweek, I think some of you were there for that. Uh, at the beginning of Galatians, in Galatians 1, 17 to 18, Paul is telling his story. And he's talking about how after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he didn't go to Jerusalem to try and check things out. He didn't. He went and he spent time with the Lord. It says he spent three years in Arabia and Damascus being taught by the Lord the gospel that he now shares. And I think this Saul grew stronger comment is when Saul went to Arabia and was learning directly from the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, looking at the scriptures, looking at the Old Testament scriptures that we now have in our Bibles, and just realising how amazing Jesus is. How great he is as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And he learned deeply who he is. And he kept on confounding the Jews. I like that. He went to the synagogues, he kept on preaching Jesus to the Jews, and they couldn't answer him. He kept on proving that Jesus is a Messiah. How did he do that? I think he read the Bible. I think he went through Genesis through to Malachi and just pointed out all of the different places that God promised a Messiah and then showed how it relates to Jesus. Places like Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head you will strike his heel. That is what God says to the snake, to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's promising Jesus. He's saying, this woman who you tempted is going to have a son many years down the way, and he is going to get you. Don't think you've got away with anything. He is going to get you. And you are going to hurt him, yes. On the cross, the devil thought he had Jesus. But the very thing that the devil thought, biting the heel, yes, I'm going to get him, was the thing that the Lord used to crush his head. Amen. That is the Lord Jesus. Psalm 2. Uh, you know Psalm 2. Um, he, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot against the king and God? Psalm 2 verse 7 says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. What is it that the voice from heaven says when Jesus is baptized? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus 
Psalm 2 verse 7 is fulfilled by Jesus. Genesis 22. Abraham takes his son, Isaac, up to the mount, which when you look into it is actually the, the mountain that Jesus died on in the fullness of time. But Isaac says, hey, dad, where's the lamb? He doesn't know what Abraham has planned at that point. Where's the lamb? And God, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. That was Jesus. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. We're coming into Christmas season. That was Jesus. Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. The suffering servant. In 52, 14, his appearance was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. Have you seen the passion of the Christ? After Jesus was put through all the things that the Bible tells us he was put through, he no longer looked like a man. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man. Verse 4, he himself carried our diseases and bore our pain. Verse 5, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins and iniquities. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted but did not open his mouth. Verse 10, he will see his seed and God will prolong his days. Did you know that we, Jesus did not have children of his own, but Isaiah 53 promises that the suffering servant will see his seed. He will see his offspring. That's us. We, the church, are the seed of Jesus Christ. Paul would have pointed and said, look, you see this church. The church that I tried to destroy is proof that God honoured the promise made in Isaiah 53. Psalm 22, an amazing psalm. Starting off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus repeats this on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 7, I am a worm, no longer a man. Everyone who sees me mocks me. Jesus is mocked by all from highest to lowest on the cross. Verse 8, he relies on the Lord. Let God save him. That's exactly what they said to him. They said, if he's the Messiah, let God help him. It's all there in Psalm 22. Verse 16, they pierced my feet and my hands. Verse 18, they divided my clothes amongst themselves. This is all Jesus. Written 600, 700, 800 years before he lived it. Zechariah 12, verse 10, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierce. This is God speaking. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. God is saying, you're going to pierce me, just like they pierced Jesus. Psalm 16, verse 10, You will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. David wrote that, but he was talking about Jesus. Because after three days in the grave, what happened? He rose again. You know, corruption starts on the fourth day after death. Yeah? They didn't want to unwrap Lazarus because he'd been dead four days. It's like, oh, it's going to be a little bit stinky, you sure? But you will not allow your faithful one 
to see decay. Three days is before the decay started creeping into Jesus' body. The promise was kept. Tim Keller talks about how it isn't just individual bits of prophecy, but you can see Jesus in every part of the Bible. He talks about the true and better. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal, to let us off the hook. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he's going, and went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain, sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. And he goes on all the way through. Um, look it up, Tim Keller, True and Better. You will find a video on YouTube. It's well worth a listen. You can see Jesus in every book of the Bible. Do you know that? In Genesis, we've already said, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, Abraham's seed through whom God will bless all nations and the lamb that God provides for us. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is our water in the desert, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that guides us. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet that Moses promised. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and our lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he was our trusted prophet, priest and king. In 1 Kings, he is that ruler greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he is the powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, he is the son of David coming to rule. In 2 Chronicles, he is our king who reigns eternally. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of our life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai, the protector of his people. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer, the mediator between God and man that Job said, if only there was one, it's him. In Psalms, he is our shepherd and our song. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom and the meaning of our life. In the Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace and the Suffering Servant. In Jeremiah, he is the Righteous Branch. In Lamentations, he is the Weeping Prophet. He wept, he wept over Jerusalem, saying, I would have gathered you to, <laughs> under my wing if you would have just come. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in life's fiery furnace. He is the true king who will replace all weaker human kings and emperors. And he is the one who shuts the lion's mouth. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the black backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the one who is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the great 
missionary. In Micah, we read that earlier this morning, he is the one who casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist crying out, revive your work in our midst in these years, Lord. In Zephaniah, he is our warrior saviour who rejoices over us with singing and quiets us with his love. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the pierced fountain opened up in the house of David for sin and uncleanliness. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising up with healing in his wings. And he is our God who promises to come soon to his temple. New Testament. In Matthew, he is king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man, feeling what you feel going through what you go through. In John, he is the son of God, God himself dwelling with us. In Acts, he is the saviour of the world who dwells in his people by his spirit. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the water from the rock that Israel drank. He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. In 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one, always leading us in victory. In Galatians, he is your liberty, setting you free. In Ephesians, he is head of the church. In Philippians, he is your joy. In Colossians, he is your completeness and all-sufficiency. In First and Second Thessalonians, he is your hope. In 1 Timothy, he is saviour of the chief of sinners. In 2 Timothy, he is your stability, your foundation. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Titus, he is truth. In Hebrews, he is your high priest and your perfection. In James, he is the one who puts your faith to work. In 1 Peter, he is your hope in times of suffering. In 2 Peter, he is your purity. In 1 John, he is your life. In 2 John, he is the pattern you follow. In 3 John, he is your motivation. In Jude, he is the foundation and the pillar of your faith. And in Revelation, that scary book we don't read, we really need to. Because in Revelation, he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the one who is coming again, and the one who makes all things new. Amen. Amen? The whole of this book is about Jesus. Where we, even where we don't think we can see him, it's about him. This is what Paul was proving to the Jews, and they didn't like it. He was confounding them. Verse 23, after many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. What found last week that Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And this is the start of it. His own people turning against him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. But Paul's disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket an opening in the wall of all the ways to escape finally after those three years that Galatians talks about Saul arrives in Jerusalem he tries to join the disciples but he's not welcomed the church in Jerusalem is scared understandably right he held the coats and approved of Stephen's death he went running after the church they think this is just some ploy of his to find out who is really a disciple and who isn't. 
but they don't believe that he's really a disciple. But Barnabas, do you remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4? Barnabas is the one who sells a field and gives all of it to the apostles to distribute to the poor. Ananias and Sapphira, that's another Ananias, isn't it? Forgot, Forgot about that one last week. Ananias and Sapphira sold some property and kept some of it back. Barnabas was the good-hearted. His name means son of encouragement. So he comes alongside Saul and he takes him and he brings him to the apostles and explains to them and he gives them three evidences for the reason Saul isn't trying to get them. One, he's seen the Lord on the road. Two, the Lord had talked to him. And three, in Damascus, he was boldly speaking in the name of Jesus. So eventually, Saul is accepted and received in Jerusalem. And it says he was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. But he wasn't just in the church. He again went to the synagogues. He went to the Jews. And it says in verse 29, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. But again, they try and kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You see, the suffering continues. The suffering starts in Damascus when he finds that they're going to try and kill him and he escapes. It carries on a little bit in Jerusalem when his own brothers won't receive him and it takes Barnabas to point out, no, he really is one of us. Come on, let him in. And it continues again when the Hellenistic Jews try and kill him. But I think we need to look at Acts chapter 22, because Acts 22 is Paul telling his own story. And it says it like this. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance and saw the Lord telling me, hurry, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. See, Paul didn't just escape. He was being obedient to what the Lord called him to. The Lord gave him a vision that informed him of the plan. And this shows that actually, although Jesus said he's going to suffer for my name, it isn't all suffering. Actually, there are times when the Lord delivered him from suffering to a wider mission among the Gentiles. See, we need to know what we are called to. Not just long term. Paul knew that he was going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus. The Lord told him. But in the moment... Paul could have looked at that and said, well, okay, I should probably just submit and suffer. The Lord will deliver me somehow. No, he listened and he heard, in this instant, in this moment, Paul, go. I'm not delivering you into their hands. Reminds me a little bit of Philippians 4. You know that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can take that exam. I can overcome my shyness. Yeah, it says all things. But Paul writes that with context. 
Philippians 4, he's talking to them about um, the Philippians who'd sent him some money. Yeah? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. But I don't say this out of need because I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I find myself in. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knew how to suffer. And he knew how to escape suffering when the Lord said it was the right thing. He knew how to live with lots and with little. We need to follow his example. There will be times in our lives when we are blessed with abundance. There will be times in our life where we are called to be faithful in suffering. And God, just like for Paul, releases grace for each one. If he's not giving us grace to handle abundance, we will not handle it well. It will become an idol in our lives. It will become that thing that keeps us from what he is calling us to. If we don't have grace for the suffering, we won't handle it well. We will get bitter and disappointed and not know how to handle it. But Paul learned the secret, and you can see him learning it here, of suffering well. So the church, verse 31, throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Hallelujah. And there's two things we need to hold. Living in the fear of the Lord, knowing that he is powerful, knowing that he is the righteous judge, but being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Who's been encouraged by the Holy Spirit today? It's been good. He is always good amongst us. If we live in the fear of the Lord and we're encouraged by the Holy Spirit, then the church increases in number. We saw it in the book of Acts. I believe we're going to see it here in Trinity Life Church. I believe that there are going to be people who come to believe in Jesus just like Paul did through what we do out and about when we're not in this building. I believe that there are actually people who already know Jesus that are meant to be part of us and he's going to bring them to join us like he's brought you guys. As we live in the fear of the Lord and as we're strengthened by being encouraged by the Holy Spirit, I believe he's going to do it. Should we pray? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the way that you turned Paul's life around. Lord, he was going one way thinking he was serving the God of Israel, but he was fighting against the God of Israel. And you, Lord Jesus, met him on the road to Damascus and you confounded the people around him. You astounded them at seeing the difference in his life. And Lord, you encouraged him, you taught him, you deepened him, you strengthened him and you sent him out as apostle to the Gentiles. Lord, I pray that we would learn well what Paul learned about how you are the centre of everything. Lord Jesus, how you are the, the capstone and the cornerstone. 
Lord Jesus, how you are the foundation and the heights, the king seated on high, how you are all in all. Lord Jesus, give us that vision so that as we go out amongst the people of the world, we won't tell them that they need to behave. We won't tell them, Lord Jesus, that they're, they're wicked, rotten sinners, but we will tell them that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who loves him so much that he laid their life down for them. Send us out with this gospel of King Jesus, Lord Jesus, so that it will bear much fruit, Lord, and that you will get the glory due your name. And Lord, like Paul learnt the secret of being content, will you help us learn to be content? Will you give us grace to handle riches and grace to handle little? So that in all things, Lord Jesus, in our hearts, we hold you as Lord, and in our lives, we glorify you as King. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.